Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here with us today. We're glad to see you. Glad that you have come to join us in worshiping our God. Uh, We are, as you know, celebrating the season of Advent. And as Christmas approaches and the world turns its attention to the birth of Christ, we recognize that the coming of God's Son so many years ago speaks to our past, our present, and our future. Jesus is coming, it's who we have been, it's who we are, and it's who we will be. Each of these identities, you see, is formed by the knowledge of Jesus, whom God sent to this world as a baby, a baby who became an extraordinary man, an extraordinary man who, became, who gave his life for the redemption of the world, and in whom as he raised from the dead, brought salvation to God's people. Jesus is our past and our present. We live in his salvation now, and we look forward to his return because that is our future. And as we spoke of last week, that is what gives us great hope in the midst of turmoil. That we know Jesus is coming, and so therefore we live as those who recognize that one day God is going to restore all things and make all things new. There is, church, great hope in this knowledge. The renewing of all things is something that we eagerly await for. But still, the idea of Jesus' return, while we hope in it, is not always an idea that brings peace. There's a lot we could say about peace. Uh, Does it mean lack of conflict with other people? Does it mean lack of conflict in ourselves? You know the old proverb, you know, if you pray for peace, then your life goes crazy, you know? That's my paraphrase of, don't ever pray for peace, because things just get worse, it seems. But I, I think I I think it's interesting that the idea for Christians and non-Christians alike that Jesus is coming back, the knowledge that Jesus is coming back, that that doesn't always create peace inside of us. It can sometimes create a great deal of anxiety. And I have had several conversations with Christians who, uh, as they got older or they were nearing the end of their lives, you know, they were probably like in their 60s, I just, I just turned 45, so I'm just going to milk it as long as I can. Okay, they still had some life left. But for many, when they reach this point, and, and I just, I've experienced it with a lot of different people, they start to ask questions about themselves and about their lives and about God. And there's one question I think in particular that people in, that find themselves in this place have a hard time getting away from. And the question is this, have I done enough for God? Now, there have been times where I have replied, based on the situation, with a pretty simple no. You haven't done enough for God. In fact, you will never do enough to be deserving of God. 
This is, after all, why we spend so much time celebrating Jesus, isn't it? The recognition that we will really never be enough and that we have Jesus as our Savior. And yet, even with the reassurance of the love of God in these moments, I can tell in these conversations that the fear is not really gone. Have I done enough? Well, Jesus loves you. God loves you. Jesus came to die for you. But the fear doesn't go away, and I think this happens for a few reasons. Number one, we know what we have done in our lives, and we may not forgive ourselves for those things. And the question then becomes, well, why or how would God forgive us for these things when I'm not even forgiving myself for them? And secondly, most of us, I am confident of this, have experienced a lack of forgiveness in our lives from those we have hurt over far less than what we have done to offend God. So how can God love us if we have hurt him in such meaningful ways when others who we did not intend to hurt or maybe didn't even know we were hurting never forgave us in our lifetime for the wrong that we committed? So I think it's important for us to understand something right away about these questions in particular. The evil one who wants to separate us from God, this is how he wants us to think. He wants us to dwell on these questions, stew in them, if you will, until no argument, no kind word, no act of love can turn our minds from the implications of these questions. The evil one wants us to be anxious and fearful. He wants us to despair. He wants us to be at war with ourselves and ultimately then at war with God. And he wants us to believe that we have not done enough for God and that God is keeping track of those things. So that therefore when Jesus comes, there will be a reckoning for you even if you are in Christ. He wants us to believe that we are so bad that God could never possibly forgive us. But all of this relates back to one bigger lie, the big lie that he wants us to buy. He wants us to believe that the love of God is not big enough to love past all those things. After all, everyone has their limits, right? That's convicting for me. Because I realize when I'm asking all these questions about myself, if I break them all down and, and, and get down to the bottom of it, what I'm really saying is that God is not capable of what he says he will do. And while on the surface, this looks like I'm questioning myself and my life and what I have done, the bottom line is, I don't believe that God is capable of the love that he has promised. And that, church, is the big lie. That God is not capable of the love he has promised. On this second Sunday of Advent, we have 
uh, lit the candle of peace. And just as was true with hope, peace is a foundational element of what Jesus brought to the earth. And maybe even now the words from Isaiah chapter 9 are running through your mind. Chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But we know that Jesus' time on earth was not entirely peaceful. I mean, he was publicly executed. So what does Isaiah mean when he prophesied that this coming Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. Here's the key to understanding how Jesus brings peace, and it doesn't actually start with Jesus. It starts with God. So repeat these things after me, if you would be so kind. You ready? If you need to warm up a little, do some vocal exercises, Megan can take you through them, but let's just, let's just go for it. Okay, first one. God is in charge. God has a plan. God will carry out his plan. Now, there's a fancy theological word for all of this. Um, that word is sovereignty. Uh, this refers to God's absolute right to do all things according to his good pleasure. To put it in more simple terms, God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to do it. Isaiah chapter 45 speaks to the sovereignty of God. I am the Lord and there is no other, God says. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all of these things. God is sovereign. He makes all things happen. He can do all things. He is in charge. Now, that sovereignty in the hands of you or I would probably be a bad thing. If we could do what we want, when we want, how we want to do it. But in the hands of God, this sovereignty is a really good thing. And the reason why is because while we would misuse our sovereignty to serve ourselves, God is of a much higher quality than you and I. We are, after all, sinners in need of a Savior. But I don't know what sticks out to you about these verses. I, I think some things that might really jump out to someone is, uh, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. And then we're asking, well, what kind of disaster is God bringing? And what does that mean? And does he cause all those things? But that's really not the main kind of point or emphasis of this verse, although it's what draws our attention. God is saying that he is strong, that he is over all things, that he will get the job done. But there is one little part that we cannot overlook because it is the heart of who God is. And it's in verse 5. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. 
God is saying he is God over all, and yet his preface to these statements is, I am God, and I will take care of you even though you walk away from me. Here's the truly amazing thing that speaks to some of the hang-ups we talked about before, but that God speaks back into. God can do as he sees fit. God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. But church, God saw fit to send Jesus here to save you and me. That was for his good pleasure. So a main principle we can't forget is that God saves you because he wants to save you. God saves you because he wants to save you. He didn't have to. He wants to. And God saw fit to send Jesus here for his good pleasure to save you and me. Therefore, whatever peace we are going to have with ourselves, with the world, with God, with those around us, is ultimately rooted in who we understand God is. It is rooted in the sovereignty of God. Because peace is not living without conflict or fear or anxiety. Peace comes from us living with the knowledge that whatever conflict or fear or anxiety may arise, it will ultimately not overturn the plans of God. For God is doing what he wants to do, which is to save you, to save me from sin and death. Amen? Now, as we see in the Gospels, this plan that God has through Jesus was not an easy one for everyone to grasp. Even though they believed that God was sovereign and that God could do as he wanted and saw fit, it was hard for the people that were living in the time of Jesus to accept God's sovereignty. God did what he wanted to do in sending Jesus, but Jesus was not the kind of Messiah or the kind of Savior that the world was looking for at this time, at that time. And we shouldn't be too critical because here we are thousands of years later, able to see the whole picture, and we still struggle with what the love of God means for us and for others. God knew that this would be the case that there was going to have to be some fundamental changes in how people understood the world and how people understood him and what he wanted to do. He wanted them to see that salvation had come, and he wanted people to know that Jesus was their Savior. So there's something important for us to note here, that in God's plans, and you find this in the prophets, you find this in the story of the birth of Jesus, God did not want to show up and just surprise people so they had no idea what was going on, and then boom, Jesus is gone. That was not his plan. He didn't want to just show up unannounced. He wanted the world to be ready for his plan. So God purposely planned to send someone ahead of Jesus so that the message of Jesus would be better received by the world which may not be ready for it. From Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple 
The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness and the offerings of Judah. And Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So we have ideas, images, pictures like this that come up during the prophets. And it's a picture of what it will ultimately be like when God returns. And there are some pretty vivid images here. No one will be able to stand before him when he returns. He will be so overwhelming. And then there is often uh, um, language of refinement, with, which if, you are, uh, if you're familiar with this language, that means ultimately in, that, that all impurities are burned off until all that's left is, is, is the pure essence of this thing. People will bring offerings, and the nature of things will be set into balance. The sovereignty of God, which brings us peace, will come. But it doesn't sound entirely peaceful, does it? It sounds hard and difficult. But we can't forget that before any of this is to happen, God will send someone ahead to prepare the way for what is coming. So this story, this image is not God sneaking in like a thief in the night. This is not God trying to catch people unaware and do some sort of holy gotcha. God does not want to catch the world sleeping. He wants everyone to be awake and alert. He wants his return, in fact, to be a celebration, to be the positive reunion with his people that he so desires. So Malachi prophesied that God would send someone ahead of him to prepare for the coming of the Lord so that when he does show up, the people will be ready for him and it will be the kind of reunion that he's hoping for. And notice that because the messenger has come, even though the presence of God is overwhelming, the people are in the temple expectant of the Lord's appearance. He comes suddenly, but he is not expected, and the people are ready to worship him. So it's the second thing for us to note. If God had his way, his return would not be a time of fear or worry or anger. It would be a time of fulfillment and peace and celebration. Because the return of Jesus was never meant to be a scary thing. It is meant to be a time where all things come together and God restores and renews. So just as God spoke of sending a messenger coming before him so long ago, God wanted to send a messenger ahead of Jesus so that his way into the hearts of God's people would be made ready. And sometimes I think we forget this, but God really wanted Jesus to be successful. He wanted this to work. He wanted his people to be redeemed and for their hearts to be turned to the message of the kingdom. But God knew that this was not an easy proposition. Jesus was going to be a controversial figure, and some would flock to Jesus and see God's work, while others would reject Jesus entirely and ultimately take his life. 
But God wanted his people to be as ready as possible, eyes and ears open to God's great and surprising work. So he sent someone ahead of Jesus to prepare the way. From Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John was a messenger who we acknowledge, as we've studied him before, his purpose was to proclaim that there was one who was coming to, to whom the entire world needed to pay attention. Through John, the road for Jesus was prepared. But there's something that I think we have overlooked a little bit in the message of John. What does this passage say is the first thing that he preached to them? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, why does John need to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to prepare the way for Jesus? What? Preparing their hearts, right, because if Jesus shows up and say you need to turn your heart back to God and you're like, my heart's fine and you're not really what God is doing anyway, then they will reject him, yeah? But John comes and he starts proclaiming that people's hearts need to be turned back to God. And the way for Jesus was made easier because he had someone going before him telling the world that he was coming and to pay attention. And all this was done in the hope that when Jesus arrived, people would recognize him. Their hearts had been turned back to God, and now here's the one they had been waiting for. There's an underlying image here that I want us to explore for just a moment, though. It talks about curvy roads and valleys and hills. And in order for roads to be made straight, it means they have to be taken somehow from curvy to straight, which means the old road with all of its twists and turns will be no longer. If the valleys and hills are going to be either filled in or flattened, it means that in what is coming, they cannot be what they once were. Things have to change. Jesus came to bring salvation, yes, but he also came to bring change. Instead of being a victorious warrior who had come to restore Israel above all other nations, he was a humble man born in a manger, homeless for most of his adult life. And instead of restoring a city, he restored God as king in the hearts of God's own people. And what he did by changing all these things, which you know how we hate change. All those things had to change. 
But look at what the end result was. The path was straight. Okay. What is the path? Right? We can say the path is Jesus, but let's take the path is to get from point A to point B, right? You used to do this and this, and, but now you're just doing this. So we may lament the loss of the curves and the hills and the valleys. Because this is not what God should be doing. God should be doing this. Or this is not how God should be working in the world. But understand, Jesus is our path from where we are to where? To God. And so when this path is made straight, when hearts are prepared, when they are looking for their Savior, Jesus provides a way for us to get straight to God. You don't have to climb the hills anymore. You don't have to go through the dark, fa- the dark forest of unforgiveness and you know, the valley of judgment. And get- Jesus provides this way for you. Zechariah, the father of John, was told he would have a son who would pave the way for the Messiah. Uh, Zechariah was skeptical and argued with the angel who gave him this message and therefore was not allowed to speak until he had come to terms with what it was that God was doing. And when he finally came to understand and his speech was restored, this is what he said. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercies to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies, and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. This message here is important because he speaks so many uh, um, things that are true that, again, are easy for us to overlook. But it's a description of God looking forward with great joy to the coming of Jesus because God understood that this was a life-changing event and Zechariah is now caught on to what's happening. And so guess what? He's excited too. And look at the words that are used to describe Jesus. Horn of salvation, one who will show mercy, rescue from the hands of enemies. We can serve him without fear. There is forgiveness of sins. God is coming to be with us. And, And we see that through Jesus... God's aim was to bring peace back to the world, to restore balance, to give all of the wonderful gifts that he could. And to bring chaos, to to take chaos out of creation and to bring back 
restoration and, and relationship with him. And, Zere- and Zechariah makes some important observations here. That in doing this, God is fulfilling every promise he has ever made. That God is restoring, that God is lifting us above our enemies, that God is giving us a way to be his people again. And yet some missed all that Jesus had to offer because they were not ready to hear this, and this was a message they did not want to hear. Because receiving mercy from God requires us to understand our need for mercy. Receiving salvation means that we have to understand we are lost. And while many cried out for rescue and salvation to God and received it through Jesus, there were still many who rejected Jesus because they did not want or believe they needed him. But just remember that Simply because someone rejects Jesus, it doesn't mean he's not Jesus anymore. Just because someone says he is not who he is, it doesn't make him, he does not cease to be our Savior. Amen? As we look forward to the return of Jesus... May we have peace. And may we understand that that peace is not a complete lack of conflict in our lives. That it's not a complete lack of fear or anxiety or struggle or hurt. But instead, the peace that God offers us through Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace is the knowledge that God is writing this story that we are a part of. And that God is in charge and in control of all things. The ups and the downs, God is still God in all of those things. And let us never forget that God, out of his good pleasure as the almighty God of the universe, wants to save you sent his son here to save you because he loves you. And knowing that God loves us in this way, knowing that there is, that he is above all things, knowing that he is coming to restore, knowing that he started that with the birth of a baby so long ago, allows me to do this one important thing in the middle of everything else in the chaos and the strife. Do you know what that thing is? It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen.